As our music team has reminded us already this morning, it is the first Sunday of the Advent season. And so while we're ready as a church to really begin looking with wonder and joy at the transforming truth and grace of God becoming human at this time of year, I thought we'd also take one last look at the season of harvest, the season of giving thanks, as we look at another passage in the book of Ruth this morning. So we're going to take another look at Ruth this morning, Ruth chapter 2. It's a story that's taking place in a field that has been picked clean by harvesters. This is going to be a tough holiday season for a lot of us this year. A number of us have lost a lot lately. It's going to be a time when everything and everybody around us is going to seem to be saying, be happy, celebrate, be merry, eat a lot of food. When in our hearts it's going to maybe kind of feel like we're standing in a fallow field, a field that's already harvested and dry and empty. And the good news is that these are times when Jesus especially loves to show up to visit his people in very tender ways. And he shows up for Ruth, and he shows up for Naomi, her mother-in-law, here in Ruth chapter 2, at just such a time in their lives. This is the good news of Jesus, the one who protects us, the one who provides for us, the one who communes with us most of all, in fallow, picked-over fields. Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field. Or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. 
and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before? The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. And so she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Father, we know that in this Your word, you have given to us life. We know that in this, your word, you seek to commune with us. We know that in this, your word, you reveal to us Jesus. And in him and through him, we know your presence. We know your favor. We know your grace. And so bring favor and bring grace to cracked hearts that feel empty and fallow this morning. And let us see the wonder, once again, of the cross, the wonder of the resurrection of Christ, the wonder of your love, that we might be drawn even more into true rest and true satisfaction in your Son. Do this for us, out of your love for us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been a tradition in my wife Ellen's family for many years now. It usually starts about this time of year as we get ready to go into Advent. Her family would gather day after day and my mother-in-law would read aloud to the family by usually the end of the day at night before everybody went to bed. She'd read aloud to the family a 1952 title by the name of Nancy and Plum, authored by Betty McDonald. Some of you may know the story. 
two sisters, Nancy and her sister Pamela, who's called Plum as a nickname. And both of these sisters, they lose their parents in a car accident at the very beginning of the story. Their uncle, who's a wealthy man, is also a very selfish bachelor who doesn't want to take care of them. And so he pays to put them in a boarding school in a town called Heavenly Valley. The name of the town is ironic because the woman who runs the boarding school in Heavenly Valley, Mrs. Monday is her name, she's about as sweet-natured as Corella DeVille. And she gives all the good food and the warm clothes to her niece, her favorite, while she practically starves and abuses all of the other girls, and she has it out especially for Nancy and Plum. And so while struggling with grief and wondering if anyone on the earth still loves them, they keep each other's spirits up with hope as much as possible through the story. In a lot of ways, the story kind of is about hope. But finally, conditions, they get so bad at the boarding school that the girls, they decide to run away. They have no idea where they're going to get their next meal and their shoes and their clothes are starting to be filled with holes. And they start walking the fields of the countryside in late November, early December, right about now. And the days are getting shorter and colder. And they're not in Texas, and so it's really cold. Towards the end of the story, they climb up high onto a haystack in the middle of an unknown farmer's field so that they can find a place to sleep. They're dejected, and they have no idea what is going to happen next. And this is, in lots of ways, it is a good picture of where Naomi and her foreign Gentile daughter-in-law, Ruth, find themselves at the end of chapter 1. As many of you will remember when we looked at Ruth 1 a few weeks ago, both women had lost their husbands in the land of Moab, which is just to the east of Israel across the Jordan River. Naomi had actually lost her husband and both of her sons. Orpah, Naomi's other daughter-in-law, she stayed in Moab, which was very understandable and even advised by Naomi herself. And we looked at how Ruth showed incredible divine commitment and loving kindness to enter into the messiness of being committed to her mother-in-law. She doesn't listen to her mother-in-law, but instead chooses to stay with her in the midst of Naomi's complete destitution. And she chooses to go back to what would be a foreign land for her, back to Israel, populated by a foreign people who are not going to be likely to welcome her. And at the end of chapter 1, we find Naomi completely heartbroken as she looks at her circumstances and she sees no reason to hope. No reason to hope for food, no reason to hope for shelter, provision of any kind, or protection of any kind. She feels absolutely forsaken. Absolutely forsaken by God. She feels cursed by God. It's very clear by the things that she says about God in chapter 1. It's even a good bet. It's even a good bet that she feels guilty and ashamed 
she and her husband, they had left the promised land, the heavenly valley, because there was a terrible famine there in chapter 1 where we read. Her sons then went on to marry non-Israelite Gentile wives. And both of these actions, leaving the promised land during hard times, and then having your sons marry Gentile wives, they would have both been seen as acts of unfaithfulness to God. And so it's very likely that she would have been feeling a crushing weight of all kinds of guilt and shame Maybe seeing herself as a great part of the reason that all these curses had fallen. But she now found herself in a place of no provision, no protection. Feeling out of favor and unloved by God. But at the end of chapter 1, verse 22, there's a shred of hope. At the end of chapter 1, which is not in front of you in your bulletin this morning, I'll read it. It says, And they came to Bethlehem, the town whose name means house of bread. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And Naomi, suffocating in her own pain and suffering, she could not see how the means of God's grace to her was now in the form of this young poor, powerless widow who's trying to speak Hebrew with a strong Moabite accent. And it may be that Ruth's presence could have been even just a reminder, even a daily reminder to her of all the things that she'd lost, of maybe her own perceived failing. We don't really know, the text doesn't tell us, but as we you know, read the text, you see that Ruth is the only one who goes out into the field. Naomi's not with her. We don't know why she's not with her. could be that she's too old to go out. We don't know. She could also just be in too much despair to go out. If you've been depressed, if you've been in deep depression, I have. If you've been deeply depressed, if you've been in deep despair, you're not motivated to do much much of anything, you start to give up. Why get up? Why go out there? That may be where she is. But already in verse 2 of chapter 2, we see Ruth continuing to act with the same kind of faith that we saw in the last chapter. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, verse 2, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him and whose sight I shall find favor. Some of you have lost jobs lately. And you know that you can't just sit on your hands. You can't just sit on your couch and wait for something to drop out of the sky. And Ruth doesn't do that either. She goes out into the fields. She's ready to work. But she understood that it would be be an exercise in futility. It would be all for nothing if grace didn't happen. If she didn't find favor. And so she grabs her basket and she heads for the fields, not to pull herself up by her own bootstraps, but because she expected to find a savior there. The law given to Moses allowed for the poor to follow the harvesters during the harvest season and to pick up any dropped or unharvested grain for themselves so they can have something to eat 
You can see it in passages like Leviticus 19 and 23. So when Ruth arrives at the field, she saw what every poor homeless person with no land and no job working for a landowner would have seen. She saw broken, dried out, picked over stalks of barley, completely empty of grain, because it was all in the hands of the crowds of workers up ahead. The men, they would, they would cut the stalks and leave them in piles on the ground, and the women would follow up after them and tie up the piles into bundles to be transported later to the grinding mill. And so while it was harvest time for many, for Ruth, it was a reminder of what she didn't have. The harvest fields looked very fallow to her, picked over, empty. And this is where her Savior shows up. This is when he shows up. The narrator of the story reports that She just happened to come to Boaz's field, in verse 3. And the next verse, behold, surprise, Boaz was just coming from Bethlehem himself to see how the work was going. And the audience is kind of supposed to smile. We're supposed to get the divine joke. Because just so happens, and as luck would have it, and by chance, these are not words that reflect a way that a Hebrew looks at her world Because she knows who is intimately involved in every step of her day. Ruth didn't live in a cause and effect closed world. Her world was enchanted. She didn't see her world as a matter of pushing this button and pulling this lever or making a phone call or getting on a computer so that she could feel like she was in control of her circumstances. She was an alien. She was a foreigner to this culture. She had no contacts. She had no connections. She couldn't have her people call your people. She lived in a world where angels and demons were real and proud the earth. She lived in a world where the gods of the nations were always in battling with her God. She lived in a world where her newfound God had to show up for her or she died. And God allowed this new convert, this new believer, Ruth, to see her dependence, her need for him, so very early. And he's gracious enough to do this with us, too. To remind us that our jobs and our comfortable lifestyles, our reproductive technologies, our medicines, our retirement portfolios our Christian child-raising techniques have done absolutely nothing towards shutting him out, towards driving him away, towards leaving us more self-sufficient any more than Ruth was in this picked-over field. And God provides for her. You know the story. God provides for her through Boaz. In verses 8 and 9, he tells her, Boaz tells her, to not even worry about going to another field. To stay close to his 
his, his female workers and the grain that they might leave to get a drink of water from the jars that they were bringing along with them so that the crew could stay in the field longer without having to go back to the well. Later in verses 15 and 16, he'll tell the young men to let her come up and even glean right where the harvesters are instead of waiting for them to move on first. And then finally, he goes like way far beyond what the law of Moses required. And he tells them to pull out bundles of already picked harvested grain from their own piles and purposely leave them there for her. While you guys are harvesting all this grain, harvest a little bit for her. Do a little work for her. So by the end of the day, she has about three-fifths a bushel of barley, which is about 30 pounds. It was enough to feed herself and Naomi for two weeks when most poor gleaners were glad enough to find just enough for the day. Over and abundant. But Ruth's Savior, he does more. He does more. He doesn't just provide for her, he protects her. And she needed it. She needed it. This chapter, in fact, this whole book actually is absolutely drenched with racial tension. It's, it's worth taking a little time and just counting how often Ruth is referred to as the Moabite in this book. Just in this chapter alone, the author reminds us that she's a Moabite in verse 2. She's a Moabite in verse 6. The Moabite in verse 21. Like we didn't know this already. The foreigner. The unclean. The Gentile. Unlanded female. That one. It's a way of reminding us of Ruth's vulnerability. A way of reminding us of the fact that she has a target on her back everywhere she goes. Naomi knows this, which is why she reminds Ruth to stay in Boaz's field in verse 22, so that she won't be assaulted in somebody else's field, which could have happened to her even if she was just an Israelite woman, but as a Gentile woman, the chances go way up. But just as often as the author tells us that Ruth's a Moabite, the author tells us how many times Boaz commanded her safety. Verse 9, Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Instead, you get to drink the water that they draw for you. Verse 15, he's speaking to the young men again. The young men who would be able to provide the most security for the group, but also the same bunch who could deal out the most abuse if they were inclined. And he says to this group, Don't reproach her. Only one verse later. Do not rebuke her. In verse 21, we're told that Boaz promised Ruth that his young men would be her security guard for the whole harvest season, barley and wheat seasons. So the ones that she might have feared the most at the beginning are actually now going to be the ones who are protecting her for the whole time. And Ruth, she's, she's just absolutely undone. 
She's humbled. She's, she is brought to her knees in the astonishment over the grace, the favor that's being shown to her by her Savior. In verse 10, she falls on her face, asking why she is shown such favor, which is the key word in this chapter, such grace, especially as a Gentile. In verse 13, she says it again, I have found favor in your eyes, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant even though I'm not one of your servants. The English translation, it's being kind. The Hebrew word is slave. It's the same word that's used to refer to Hagar, Sarah's female slave in Genesis 16. In effect, Ruth is saying to her, you have shown great kindness and comfort to a slave girl, even though I'm not even one of your slave girls. Boaz provides for her. He protects her. And so she had every reason. She had every reason to leave her mother-in-law that morning with a basket in her hand, believing that her Savior would meet her in the field. And it's a reminder. It's a reminder of Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew 6, which was part of our confession of sin earlier. Do not be anxious about what you will eat about what you will wear, about where you're going to live, about how it's all going to work out, about... Look at the birds of the air. Do they worry about their next meal? Look at the flowers of the field. Do they worry what they're going to wear? It's the holidays, as you guys know. And along with all of the extra trips to the store that we take for more food and more drink at our house, we also buy a lot more extra paper plates. It's our Christmas present to our dishwashing machine, actually, every year. It's always on his list. We buy them. We buy the extra paper plates. We buy them, and we use them, and then what? You throw them away. That's why you get them. That's the point. That's why you buy them. But the point Jesus is making in Matthew chapter 6 is that God doesn't do that with his paper plates. The point that Jesus is making in Matthew chapter 6 is that he doesn't throw away his paper plates. He takes care of them. He provides for them. And if he does that for his paper plates, how do you think he's going to take care of you who is much more? much more loved, worth so much more to him. If God takes care of those parts of his creation that matters less to him, how do you think he's going to take care of you who wear his image in your body and soul? So loved that he became one of us and remains one of us to this day if he gives food and clothing to the paper plates of his creation, he's going to do far more for his people. And so Jesus goes, why do you worry? In Ruth, she experiences some of this moreness. 
Because Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 6, yeah, God's going to take care of all of your basic needs and more. And Ruth experiences some of this moreness, some of this grace that goes beyond the essentials here in this chapter 2. Her Savior, He doesn't just provide for her, He doesn't just protect her, He communes with her. He wants to get to know her. Boaz, who's such a clear picture of Jesus in this chapter, just as Ruth was such a clear picture of Jesus in the last chapter. Boaz reminds her of, uh, Boaz reminds her of this verse in, in, in 11. I know who you are, Ruth. You're the one who left father and mother and homeland out of selfless love for your destitute mother-in-law who could offer you nothing. Coming to a land where the people were most likely to reject you. So we already saw Ruth as a picture of Jesus in chapter 1. A picture of Jesus' coming who left his father's side. Who offers himself to selfish God-haters like us. Most of whom would reject him. Ruth is a picture of this in chapter 1. But now Boaz is a picture of Jesus here. Providing and protecting one who had nothing to offer in return. Selfless, gracious love that loves for its own sake, simply out of the joy of it. Not in order to get something else. Ruth, a picture of Jesus loving us out of his poverty. Boaz, a picture of Jesus loving us out of his strength. And what we see in verses 14 through 16 in this chapter is a picture of Jesus inviting us to fellowship with him. To commune with him. He tells us in these verses that he doesn't just want to provide for us to protect us, but that we're desirable to him. Boaz is having a meal with Ruth. It's a picture of the communion meal. It's a picture of what we do two, sometimes three times a month. The bread and the wine. Boaz calls her to the table and he feeds her there just as Jesus does with us on Communion Sundays. And he gives her bread and wine. Ruth was provided for and protected, but not in some sort of like pandering, condescending, throw money at the problem sort of way that robbed her of her dignity and respect. It's not like that. Jesus doesn't love us that way. She was recognized and respected and elevated and told that she was desirable enough that Jesus wanted to commune with her over a meal that pointed forward to the ultimate Savior whose body and blood was going to save both of them. This whole passage, this whole passage would actually remind every Israelite of how God had provided for them in their wilderness wanderings. Every Israelite, while reading this chapter, ought to be thinking about their own history. How God had protected them in the wilderness. God had provided for them miraculously in the wilderness. Had given them the Passover lamb as a sacrifice for their sin as they started out on the journey to be newcomers to the promised land, just as Ruth is a newcomer to the promised land. And every Christian here, Every Christian here should think of Jesus with the crowds of the people. Again in the wilderness, near a sea, but not the Red Sea, the Sea of Galilee. Feeding them bread. 
enough to feed 5,000 men and their families with 12 baskets left over. And the number 12 is not a mistake. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples of the New Covenant Church. He's basically saying, I've got more. I've got all that you need. It's, there's always leftovers with me. And although we talk about this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 a lot, we sometimes, I think, miss something very obvious in this story. Jesus' disciples, they're so worried. They're so worried at the beginning because it's getting late and there's no food to give a crowd this big and there's not time to send everybody to the nearby villages. And even though they're worried, who, who is evidently not worried? The crowds. I mean, they know they're hungry. They, they know they didn't have food with them. And yet they stayed. They stayed. They weren't going anywhere. Why? Because of who they're with. So they're with. Of course I'm hungry. Of course I don't have any food. I don't know. I don't know how we're going to feed everybody. It doesn't matter. I don't care. His words, his presence, his love for them fed their souls in ways that made them forget they had stomachs for a while. Ruth and the crowds who ate bread and fish, they could eat no more when they were done. They had a feast and a fallow picked over field because they met their Redeemer there. And as we move into Advent season, I invite you to prepare to meet your Redeemer too. I hope that's a part of what we do during Vesper services on Wednesday night. I hope it's part of what we do on Sunday mornings as we enter into Advent season in December. More than any other time of the church calendar year, this is the time when we are invited to think about being in the presence of God and communing with Him. It's all about the presence of God coming to us. And so let Him give you rest in the face of a holiday season that always threatens to rob you of it. Let Him provide for your soul and protect you from running from one field to the next and the next after that, looking for grain that's not going to fill you up, opening you up to further abuse from the enemy and from sin. Let him provide you with true food and true drink and an always present love that never leaves you because he desires you more than anything else. I hope, I pray that that is our experience as a church of Advent this year. For me too. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to ruin the story of Nancy and Plum for you. Some of you already know it. But hopefully it'll want you to read it anyway. After sleeping only one night on the top of a haystack, the girls, they slide down the next morning and they go into town and they're looking for work, anything. They're just these little girls, they're knocking on doors, We'll clean this. We'll sweep this for anything for for just a little bit of money. And the door, of course, just slammed in their face everywhere they go. 
every shop and every home. They're rebuked and they're scorned as beggar children. And of course, Mrs. Monday, she's been out searching for them because she doesn't want to get in trouble. But these girls are gone. She's been chasing them down. But somebody else is chasing them. His name's Mr. Campbell. And he pursues them down every street as the sun starts to set on another day. And he finds them just in time because they're terribly starving this time. I'm not sure they could survive another night in the cold. He finds them just in time and he gives them food that his wife had made for him to take. And he promises them much more food with clothing and shelter. And he puts them in his truck and he drives them home to his fields, to his farm, which is where they had slept the night before. And by the end of the story, they are much more than poor waifs receiving handouts. They're adopted into the Campbell home. They're provided for, they're protected, they're respected, they're known, they're loved. And so are you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, you are our Father. And you're our Father because you sent the Redeemer. You sent the Redeemer to feed us, to feed us with himself, to feed us with his kindness, to feed us with his sacrifice, to feed us with his love. And it's only because of him and through him that we can find true satisfaction for our hearts and souls. We will find provision and protection and communion with you. And so I pray that this season would be a season for just that. That you would draw us near to Jesus. That you would draw us to a communion with him. That we would experience the love and communion fellowship with Christ this Christmas season, this Advent season as we meditate and think about his coming, as we meditate and think upon his redemption, that he bought us as slaves to make us his wife and to make us your children. Delight our hearts with that truth this season. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.